Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today, my guest is Michel Jacques Gagné. For a special series dedicated to conspiracy theories, Michel has published a book by Routledge, thinking critically about the Kennedy assassination, debunking the myths and conspiracy theories released in 2022. As we approach the 60th anniversary of violence public assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, over half of all Americans surveyed continue to believe that he was killed by a conspiracy involving multiple assassins. Through its reasoned and detailed analysis of the content and evolution of JFK conspiracy narratives, the book written by Gagné serves as a comprehensive case study of paranoid reasoning and modern myth-making. The book's opening chapters lay out the official academic consensus concerning the the Kennedy assassination, better known as the Lone Gunman Theory, and discuss the origins of popular interpretation of Kennedy's life and death, such as the nostalgic myth of Camelot, the unsympathetic Irish Mafia narrative, and the many conspiracy theories critical of both. Subsequent sections scrutinize the alleged motives of leading conspiracy suspects, the ballistic, forensic, and medical evidence related to JFK's murder and the most popular proofs of an enduring government cover-up. Eventually, the book concludes that no clear evidence exists to suggest that JFK was the victim of a conspiracy and ends with a discussion of the causes and consequences of paranoid thinking in contemporary public discourse. But before we delve into all of that, First things first, Michelle, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Michelle, I want to start asking to talk a little about your background and also about the origins of the book and uh, your fascinations with JFK. Okay. Well, uh, depending on how much time you have, I'll try to be concise. Uh, I'm a Generation Xer, so I was born in the early 1970s. Uh, I'm a French-Canadian, though I'm pretty bilingual. I kind of have a foot in both cultures. Um... I grew up, uh, I was raised in part as an evangelical Protestant uh, in a part of Canada that is very secular, sometimes hostile to organized religion. So I guess I always felt a little bit like a a minority or a person who doesn't fully belong in in different cultures. And I think that's been useful over time to consider other points of view, because when you have a point of view that is not part of the the dominant culture, uh, you already know that there are a number of perspectives on an issue. But at the same time, I think growing up as a minority, uh, you do sometimes feel a little bit ostracized from mainstream society. So I think as a young man, I developed an interest in conspiracy thinking for, for a number of different uh, reasons. I, I think as a child, I was fascinated with things like UFOs and things that were mysterious. So, you know, reading some of that literature, particularly like children's magazines that talked about people being abducted. And it's the age of Steven Spielberg. So Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., these sorts of films. And I, 
having grown up uh, in a church setting that was pretty fundamentalist uh, back then, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about the rapture, the end of the world, you know, what we might call millennialism. So looking back, I can see that had an influence. When you're 12 and you read the uh, the Revelation in the New Testament for fun, uh, you start believing. And of course, it goes with the discourse you're hearing in church that an antichrist is coming. So you start having this kind of uh, view of government as being a possibly malicious. Uh, now, I, I think a lot of those things kind of were not necessarily mainstream obsessions, but I think they were part of the growing interest in what we might call, uh, what, what Michael Barkin calls um, stigmatized knowledge. And then once I started studying uh, political science and history at McGill University, uh, a man called Oliver Stone came out with his film, JFK. And I think that film kind of created in me a belief that there is an entire hidden history uh, like many conspiracy theorists that I've studied and I've, I've read about, uh, generally we're talking about an audience that is somewhat educated enough to understand the basic elements of world, uh, world events and politics, but not necessarily an expert in the field in which they, they start having theories. And I think that was the case as an undergraduate while uh, the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, uh, launched the, uh, the, the, the what, what do you call it, the Operation Desert Storm against Saddam Hussein uh, with that liberation of Kuwait. There, you know, you, we became more aware of American propaganda. The Soviet Union had now dissolved. Uh, the idea that the communists are the ones who propagandize, uh, you know, it became easier to understand how the Americans do it too. And there were a number of, I remember a number of examples in the news about, you know, Saddam Hussein killing babies out of incubators, which may have not been true at all. And I think being an undergrad, studying uh, international politics, uh, being more attentive to things like films like JFK and, and propaganda, you know, reading Chomsky, I think these things made me a little bit more suspicious, uh, maybe even a bit paranoid. Uh, eventually, I went on to do uh, a master's degree in history at Concordia University, um, and this was after I'd spent uh, five years teaching in a high school. So now I am uh, a teacher. I don't know if I can say professor because it says professor in my paycheck, but it's a junior college. It's not a research um, uh, organization. So I call myself a tenured lecturer uh, in humanities, and I teach, among other things, uh, a course called Knowledge and Conspiracy Theories. I've been teaching that for about 15 years, and that kind of gave the impetus to write this book about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, as you probably know, sometimes we get frustrated, we can't find the right textbook for our classes, and occasionally we decide, I will write my own. And at the same time, I had this whole baggage of interest in the Kennedy assassination. I'd realized that I had to change my mind, that some of the views that I had about the CIA or the mob killing Kennedy uh, were more and more obviously false in my view. And so when I had this sort of paradigm shift, I thought, well, I'm going to start with that as a way to teach students to think more critically about conspiracy thinking. So thinking critically about the Kennedy assassination brings me to my next question. And you already mentioned that movie that was released in 1991, JFK by Oliver Stone. It seems to me that in your book, this movie is essentially... Uh, you know, casting a shadow throughout the pages is always there. That that was like uh, my feeling. Can you tell us a little bit about the role that this movie plays in your book? 
Yeah, well, first of all, it, it played a very important role uh, for me personally, because I would say for a period of almost 10 years, it was one of my favorite films. I must have watched it, you know, uh, 10 times or so. And um, also, then I started showing it to my students when I was a high school teacher, uh, believing that it contained uh, uh, quite a bit of truth about uh, why Kennedy was killed and by whom. Uh, now, I would change my mind later on. Uh, but at that time, that film kind of was the, the filter through which I, I looked at American politics, and particularly the 60s. Now, this is not the first film or book to uh, suggest that Kennedy was killed by a massive conspiracy, uh, but it was probably the most popular source. In fact, there's very little original in Oliver Stone's film. I would say, apart from being a great um, uh, director and, and, and uh, cinematographer, uh, he also kind of compiled all of the possible conspiracy theories out there and tried to create a mainstream narrative out of it. And if you're not that familiar with Kennedy or Johnson or the whole context of the Cold War in the 60s, it's easy to watch this film because it moves so fast, like a, like a, almost like a, uh, one of those music videos, you know, we listened to in the 80s and 90s, uh, that you get taken up with it and you don't pause the, the movie to think critically or read Wikipedia. You just kind of accept a lot of these, uh, these scenarios and all these characters as, uh, as probable. I mean, most of them are historical people. Sometimes they're composite characters, but it's easy to fall down what we call the rabbit hole of assuming that Oliver Stone has del uh, delivered uh, unadulterated history. Uh, so that film had a profound impact on me. I have some friends who are a little bit older who have become skeptical as well about the Kennedy assassination. For them, it was when the Zapruder film was first released in 1975 on television. Uh, for other people, it might be a book that they read um, or, or the protests that they, they, they took part in in the late 60s. Uh, you know, the Kennedy assassination is one of these um, events that has been filtered through countless other social experiences the Vietnam War, the Watergate affair. Uh, for me, you know, uh, my first, I guess, experience of, of, of this sort of cloak and dagger world was the attempted assassination on, on President Reagan in 1980. So we tend to view the past through the filter of other things, other events that have affected us. So I would say for me, the attempted assassination on Reagan and the claim by Oliver Stone that there's a, a shadow government made up of members of the military-industrial complex, uh, this was a very powerful message, and one that was not too uh, esoteric. No laser beams, no flying saucers, no, no shape-shifting reptiles. It's really uh, a cold case. We're talking about largely ballistics evidence and uh, various types of um, uh, witness reports. So you kind of have to pick and choose particularly if you believe in a conspiracy theory, which ones you're going to retain and which ones you reject. And I think uh, being a good critical thinker, as I teach my students, and I've had to teach myself, I was not trained as a philosopher, I was trained as a historian, who then started teaching logic and philosophy to students, I realized that many of my assumptions were wrong because of the way that I was connecting various events together. So I don't know if that summarizes uh, that question for you, but certainly Oliver Stone has remained a very influential voice in the field of uh, JFK conspiracy research, as they like to call it, with other documentaries or, or programs like The Untold History of the United States, and more recently, a new documentary called JFK uh, Revisited, which more or less rehashes the film uh, that he made in the 90s, but now with talking heads and uh, you know uh, various elements from archives. Your book, 
is an autopsy, and these are your words, of a JFK case. I'm curious about the methodology and the sources. So can you tell us a little bit more about the sources you have used and the structure of the book? Yeah, uh, my original title for the manuscript was Autopsy of a Modern Myth. Um, the people at Routledge thought it wasn't precise enough, though I thought it was witty and I thought it said what I wanted to say. Uh, so the, the, the title eventually changed, as we often don't have control over those things. But definitely. So my interest was to delve deep into the conspiracy theories, to look at not just Oliver Stone's, but also his influences, people like Robert Grodin, uh, Jim Garrison, who conducted a, uh, an investigation in the late uh, 60s. Um, particularly a prosecution of a man called Clay Shaw, which is the main uh, theme of the Oliver Stone film. Uh, and uh, uh, there were many, many other. Mark Lane uh, is one of them. So I wanted to delve deeply into the various claims about uh, Kennedy's death uh, to see whether or not they actually agree with each other. And it turns out often they don't. They often clash with one another. Uh, first of all, by looking at some of the government investigations, so the Warren Commission, the uh, House Select Commission uh, on Assassinations. So this is 1964 and 1979, respectively. And then in the 1990s, there was another, um, uh, we could say, a release of, of files by the Assassination Records Review Board as a reaction to the Oliver Stone film. So we can thank Oliver Stone for creating more transparency in the same way that we could, I guess, we could thank um, Richard Nixon for uh, provoking Gerald Ford to create more transparency about the FBI, the CIA in the mid-70s. But of course, you know, there had to be a travesty to cause this transparency. So it's, it's a double-edged sword, I guess. Uh, apart from that, some, several of the authors that influenced me after the, the conspiracist sources were John McAdams, uh, the late John McAdams, who, uh, who endorsed my book and actually proofread uh, my, first, my first draft. Uh, Gerald Posner, Vincent Bugliosi, uh, Philip Sheenon, William Manchester. These are some of the, the major uh, historians or, or uh, lawyers who have looked into the case and published their own works. And then there are some books that are not necessarily trying to prove or disprove a conspiracy, but rather look at the entire psychology of either the conspiracy buff, the JFK buff community, or to the entire problem of why people believe in conspiracy theories, even though there's a mount, mountain of evidence that against them. So I would say that some of the, the, the books that influenced me the most in my thinking were uh, uh, James Pearson's Camelot and the, um, and the Cultural Revolution. Um, René Girard, who's a French anthropologist, who said little about conspiracy theories, but he has a, a very interesting theory about scapegoating. And so I end the book talking about how René Girard's theory uh, can help us better understand uh, the conspiracy mindset. Uh, and then uh, other names that maybe your students or my students will have heard, you know, because we talk about them in class, like Joe Yuzinski, Kasim Kassam, uh, Michael Barkun. Uh, these are some of the leading voices in what I called conspiratology. Or, or the study of conspiracy thinking, particularly by academics. Let me move to uh, part one of the book. Part one of the book is uh, an investigation into JFK, into his death, and particularly into the emergence of conspiracy theories. So can you first take us through the events of November 22nd, 1963, the investigations and the Warren Report? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to do this in a concise way. 
on the on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, President Kennedy was in the middle of a campaign to tour Texas uh, in order to raise uh, awareness, support, money for his nineteen sixty four presidential campaign. Texas was one of those states that could go either way. One of the reasons, for, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why he had uh, Lyndon Johnson as a running mate. Uh, it was easier to win a state like Texas when you're uh, an East Coast, uh, you know, Catholic, um, you know, Harvard-educated uh, man, uh, and you want to win the South. Uh, he had done so in Florida also in the weeks prior. So the visit to Dallas was not um, was not exceptional, except in so far that there were some warnings that the Ku Klux Klan and some other groups had a a fair amount of influence there. As well, there was um, a group called the, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name, the, um, uh, the John Birch Society, uh, which was a, a very right-wing um, uh, group that kind of mimicked the structure of actually communist cells. You know, they would meet in small groups and, and, and try to promote, advertise uh, their beliefs, which were very anti-United Nations uh, anti-liberal, anti-socialist. And they believe that Kennedy was part of that. Though it's interesting, if, if you read a book like um, uh, Ira Stoll's JFK Conservative, you find out Kennedy was more like Reagan uh, than, than, than Johnson even, or, or, or many other uh, um, Democratic uh, candidates uh, of, the, of the 1950s and 60s. Um, so JFK was there in the, on this campaign to, to, to build uh, popularity. Uh, the crowds were out in the street. Uh, the his limousine was part of a very large motorcade that went from Love Field uh, Airport uh, through the streets of the city, and then was going to end up at the uh, Dallas Trade Mart for a large luncheon with the business community, and where Ashley Kennedy was about to announce massive tax cuts and also investment in the military. So this was not, we could say, a, a, a promotion of liberal ideas. It was very much an attempt to. Uh, reassure the Texans that Kennedy was definitely a centrist uh, and even conservative in some ways. He was a man of faith. Uh, he was a man who believed in, uh, you know, limited spending and also, uh, you know, talking tough and acting tough towards communist expansion. Now, towards the end of this motorcade, uh, Kennedy was shot. And of course, uh, there's endless debate about who shot him from where, how many bullets and all. So let, let me state the, the official story, which is not a dirty word. It just means the consensus of, of historians. And that is that a man called Lee Harvey Oswald, who worked in a building uh, next to the, the motorcade route called the Texas School Book Depository, uh, had a Manlicker Carcano rifle, a bolt-action World War II Italian rifle uh, that uh, he brought to work that morning. And uh, took three shots, two of which hit the mark. One hit Kennedy in the back and exited his throat and caused a number of wounds in Governor Connolly, the governor of Texas, who was sitting in front of Kennedy. And then another shot hit Kennedy in the back of the head, uh, leading the side of his temple to, uh, to, to blow out in a very gruesome way. Uh, the scene was filmed by a bystander called Abraham Zapruder. Uh, there were many other films, by the way, uh, and many photographs, probably one of the most photographed filmed events of the 20th century before the advent of, you know, uh, portable phones. Uh, and so it's interesting to see how much, uh, uh, how much photographic evidence we have of this event and still how people can disagree uh, 
as to what exactly happened. Uh, so, so that covers kind of the history or, or the, the basic facts. Kennedy essentially died there, but he was declared uh, dead a half hour later at uh, Parkland Hospital. Um, and uh, very soon, uh, the Secret Service decided to take his body back to Washington. The fear was that there was a larger attack on the United States. It was not yet known who had shot Kennedy and how many people had. Uh, so against the law of Texas, they, they moved his body back to Washington, where Kennedy underwent a partial autopsy. It was a limited autopsy because uh, Mrs. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, the uh, attorney general, the, the president's brother, uh, both requested that um, the FBI obtain any projectiles or uh, pieces of bullet that could be extracted from the body for their investigation. But the full autopsy was not performed for reasons that were not disclosed at that time, which have created a lot of controversy. But ultimately, it's because uh, the family wanted to keep very tight uh, rein on any evidence of Kennedy's physical um, uh, health, uh, particularly the fact that he was suffering from Addison's disease. Uh, that they didn't want to have pictures of Kennedy's dead body, particularly naked body, uh, on in the in the newspapers. So this explains why the autopsy was rushed. It was done um, uh, with limited uh, 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 intentions, uh, just to recover bullets, and then uh, all of these documents went into the possession of the Kennedy family. To this day, they're held at the um, the National Archives, but they're restricted. Uh, for people like me and you, for example, because we're not uh, forensic uh, uh, pathologists. Uh, now, the man they did arrest was a man called Lee Harvey Oswald. He worked in that building. He fled the scene. He had lived in the Soviet Union. He was a former Marine trained to shoot with an M1 Garland, which was not that different from the cheaper Mannlicher Carcano that he had. The, the main difference was it was a, a bolt-action rifle. The other one was a semi-automatic. So it's not that this man could not do that kind of shooting. Uh, if you go to Dealey Plaza, you find out it's not that difficult to shot for someone who's trained. It's actually quite close, provided that you're not shooting through trees. And there are ways for uh, for Oswald to have shot Kennedy from the sixth floor onto Elm Street. Uh, within a very short period of time, the Warren Commission had said it was about six seconds. It turns out it was probably longer because of some mistakes that were made in rebuilding the um, uh, what would we call that? The, the 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 scenario of the assassination, because the Warren Commission uh, it didn't didn't realize that there was a shot that had been fired before the film started. So let's say about eleven seconds or so, nine to eleven seconds that the shooter had. So um, Vincent Bugliosi, uh, the famous um, uh, attorney who arrested and uh, prosecuted Charles Manson, uh, he wrote this very very thick book called um, Re uh, Reclaiming History. And in there, uh, he says, you know, the assassination of Kennedy is no big mystery. Uh, the, the problem is that it was such an important victim that the world is not satisfied with the answer that one man could have shot, uh, uh, you know, the, the most powerful man in the United States at that time. And so the theories began to, to spread uh, fairly quickly, though I argue in my book that it was still relatively limited until the days of Vietnam, until the Vietnam War created this 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 large backlash against President Johnson and and the state in general that the conspiracy theories became much more popular. So we could say that the conspiracy theories, though, began within the days and weeks after the assassination. They really became mainstream 
in the counterculture movement. And then after the Watergate affair, there is such an element of cynicism in the United States that no one would be very surprised if Kennedy were killed by the CIA, the mafia, the FBI, the Russians, the Cubans, whoever it is, everybody has a pet theory. Uh, and Oliver Stone kind of tried to connect almost all of them together in a single film. Let me ask about uh, the role of the experts. I am a microhistorian, and I was thinking about Gramsci when I was reading uh, uh, you know, some chapters in your book. And, and I was thinking about, you know, Gramsci, the role of intellectuals. And I realized that there is actually a parallel between, you know, these intellectuals, as discussed by Gramsci, and the experts. Well, perhaps it's only to an extent, but I, I thought there was something there. And I was wondering about the uh, uh, emerging role of the expert and their relationship with knowledge and how also these experts uh, essentially directed our understanding of the events of 1963. So can I ask, how do you assess the role of these individuals in relation to conspiracy theories? Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about the, the, the difference between intellectual and expert, but, but you're right. Some intellectuals are not experts in the field in which they, they emit their ideas. And some experts are not necessarily deep thinkers, uh, but they do have an expertise in things like ballistics and so forth. Um, so what, what we consider to be an expert, I think, requires a great deal sometimes of analysis and, and, and sober second thought. Uh, what I can do is uh, more or less parrot what Yuzinski and Parent said in, in their famous book, American Conspiracy Theories. And that is that an, an epistemic authority is a person who is an expert in the field in which they are emitting a theory. So obviously we would like to have an economist uh, make a prediction about you know, where the dollar will be heading in the next few days or weeks. That doesn't mean that their, their knowledge will be perfect, but they have more background, more experience, more insight perhaps to make these kinds of theories than say an anthropologist would or a historian would. Uh, so it's important to assess whether or not the, the people that we listen to have an expertise in the domain. But at the same time, we also want to make sure that their biases are not clouding their own judgment. So you mentioned Gramsci. I'm not that familiar with him, but I have read some uh, Marx. And, and, and I would say that a lot of the earlier conspiracy theories about Kennedy were, were deeply influenced by, by Marxist thought. And in Marxist thought, there is a theory of history that is incredibly simplistic which is that all of history has been the, the, the battle between classes uh, for resources, between those who are alienated from their labor and the bourgeoisie who controls the means of production. The problem is that Marx was not much of a historian. Uh, and so when he pre presents this view of history, it's incredibly simplistic. I would say there's almost a, a conspiracist event uh, element in a lot of Marx's writings. So while Marx can give us some insight about some of the abuses of capitalism or some of the ways that, you know, working class movements might succeed in improving their, their position, maybe, maybe not through a revolution. So maybe people like Gramsci had a better uh, grasp on that. I think we do have to be careful about bias. And so when the intellectual or when the expert is also an activist, they have a tendency of ignoring the full gamut of possible explanations. And then the third thing I would say is that, um, uh, and, and this is Yuzinski and, and Parent again, uh, you know, you have to look for a consensus. Uh, uh, intellectuals and experts sometimes can be like a voice in the wilderness. And they could be right, speaking truth to power, but most often human beings are the same, right? Two people who have studied more or less 
the same documents uh, and have the same form of expertise should reach some kind of similar position, assuming that a lot of the evidence is available on what happened, right? So historians rarely make claims like, um, you know, that African explorers came to the Americas before the Europeans did. This is popular in pseudo history, but it's not, it's not, as it's not agreed to by most historians. Same thing, uh, the Nazca lines, you know, in, in Peru. Uh, for someone who's not familiar with it, they might say it's a landing strip for UFOs. But when you understand, you know, the art and, and the traditions of the people of the, um, the Andes, then the idea that they made these large constructions, uh, you know, makes a lot more sense within, uh, we could say, a, a more normal explanation, uh, a context. So I'd say those three things are important. Um, uh, people who are intellectuals sometimes have grand ideas, and these need to be tempered with people who know the facts uh, well, who understand maybe the background better, and also who are impartial and who are willing to work as a community. Uh, as a community of people of, uh, as, of epistemic authorities, we're all liable to make mistakes. That's why we're meant to listen to each other. That's what peer review is for. That's why my book often says, you know, this is my perspective on here, but and this other author has suggested this explanation instead. The problem with the conspiracy approach is often it's like an echo chamber. Uh, those voices are ignored only to be uh, left with uh, the cherry-picked evidence that suits a particular scenario. Let me go back to JFK and... I want to move to part two of your book. Uh, in part two, you look at the possible suspects who may have had uh, a motive to kill JFK. And eventually, this part ends with uh, Lee Oswald, who did kill JFK, and you are discussing his possible motives. Now, whatever the case, it seems JFK had a lot of enemies. Uh, yes, he, he had enemies, but we have to be careful what we mean by enemy. Uh, you know, Donald Trump has a lot of enemies. Barack Obama had a lot of enemies. Uh, neither of those people got shot at. Now, it could be that they would be liable to be assassinated by a group or by an individual. There have been many attempts uh, to to assassinate uh, to assassinate not just heads of state, but uh, you know, famous individuals. Uh, quite often, they fail uh, because security has been improved, or perhaps because a lot of times uh, these things are. Um, uh, you, you know, they're not, they're, they're poorly planned. Uh, so Kennedy had enemies in the sense that there are many people who didn't really want him in office, but you know, a lot of those people were in his own party. And, you know, when the person wins the nomination, like Trump did in 2016, a lot of people just go with it and they just kind of wait for the, the tide to, to turn so that their particular viewpoint within the party uh, becomes dominant again. So I don't see people in the Democratic Party trying to kill Kennedy. That includes Lyndon Johnson who knew very well that he still had a chance of becoming president. I mean, assassinating his predecessor, uh, you know, lays him wide open for, for prosecution or reprisals. Uh, you know, people like uh, J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI are often seen as one of these people who didn't like Kennedy. And that may be, but Hoover had a number of ways to blackmail Kennedy, to manipulate him, or to kind of prevent him from doing certain things. Uh, he had a very powerful machinery. He could say, and he has said, Mr. President, your secrets are safe with us. You know, no matter what the press says about your, your affairs or your talks with these individuals, we promise that, uh, you know, while I'm in, uh, while I'm in power, uh, the ship of state is going to be secure. You know, that's, that's kind of a way of saying, I got enough dirt on you that I could, I can get you to do what I want. So don't bother me and I won't bother you. So 
I would be hard, I would be very surprised if a man like Hoover was interested in assassinating Kennedy when he can manipulate him so much more easily. Uh, and then there's a number of other people, you know, uh, which sometimes comes down to this very simplistic explanation of, of uh, geopolitics in the 1960s. Uh, there's no doubt that Johnson, his, um, the way that he ran the Vietnam War is probably different than the way that Kennedy would have ran it. I think Kennedy was a lot more cautious about committing American troops. But Kennedy was, I would say, even more committed than Johnson to rolling back communism. Uh, his pet project was Cuba, and Johnson put an end to that. Uh, so the person who benefited, uh, I guess, the most from Kennedy's assassination was Fidel Castro, because he wasn't assassinated. But we can't find evidence, direct evidence, linking Castro to Lee Oswald or to anyone else. So it's hard to blame uh, the, the communists here. They could have unleashed a, a world war had they had they done this. They might have unleashed uh, a retaliation. You know, Khrushchev or Castro would have gotten killed, perhaps, uh, or worse. And, uh, you know, Kennedy was very much dedicated to saving South Vietnam. Uh, this whole idea that he was going to withdraw troops from Vietnam um, is, is, is very far from being certain. Uh, there, there were some troop movements that occurred shortly before he died. But then again, uh, the South Vietnamese leader, No Dinh Diem, who was a very kind of difficult ally to deal with, uh, got um, he was he was uh, overturned and killed by his own military uh, just a couple weeks before Kennedy's own assassination, and that changed the complete um, uh, the, 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 what was going on on the ground in, in Vietnam uh, because now uh, the United States had to deal with a country that essentially essentially didn't have a political head. It had a military, but it had to step in more directly in assisting South Vietnam to fight uh, communism. So the world would have been different had Kennedy survived. But how different is another question. It, it may have been worse. It may have been that the whole uh, attempts to kill Castro that Kennedy uh, had sanctioned could have led to World War III. So sometimes we have to look at, you know, alternate, alternate futures, not necessarily as a utopia, but as possibly a, a, a worse scenario than our own. The whole discussion about Kennedy's enemies often starts with the assumption that had Kennedy not been killed, he would have done A, B, C, D, you know, namely uh, ended the war in Vietnam, made peace with the Russians. And there's very little evidence of that. I think some of the most qualified authors would say that's not the case at all. So I'm curious about uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. What are the motives uh, in your views that brought him to uh, attempt and, of course, kill JFK? Yeah, many people believe that Oswald had no motive or that the Warren Commission uh, couldn't find one. And that's not quite true. What is true is that the Warren Commission decided not to include a discussion of Oswald's motive in their report. And there are two good reasons for that. One of them is that because Oswald was a large uh, admirer of Fidel Castro, that somehow this might lead back to the possibility, though not proven, that Oswald was a sleeper agent for the Cubans receiving some sort of, uh, you know, uh, a go-ahead from Castro or from his, his government. And this is the thing that Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, wanted to avoid at all costs. If Oswald was sent by the Cubans to kill Kennedy, then that means that uh, President Johnson would almost have to take military action. And if he didn't, uh, someone else would, perhaps Barry Goldwater, who was running against him in the upcoming election. So there are a number of reasons why he would have told the Warren Commission to satisfy the public that Lee Oswald is guilty. I think 
pretty much all the investigators at that time agreed with that, but not to delve too deeply about whether or not he had a direct connection to Cuba. So the Warren Commission knew that he had an admiration for Cuba, that he wanted to go there, but they didn't delve deeply in his motive. There were two motives discussed in the preliminary drafts of the Warren Commission. Uh, one of them was by uh, Liebler. What was his first name? Um, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the lawyers working for the commission. Uh, and Mr. Liebler argued that Oswald was a radical, politicized, uh, unbalanced individual who killed Kennedy essentially because he knew somehow that the, uh, the Americans were planning to over, overthrow Castro. Uh, and so he was a political radical. But of course, that's not the story that uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson wanted the public to believe. So that was kind of left out. There was another theory, which carries some interest, but also it's, it's kind of Freudian. And that was that uh, Representative Ford, who went on to be President Ford later on, his argument was that Oswald was just a very angry young man who had mother issues, who never had a father, who had a great deal of jealousy uh, for President Kennedy. And so a lot of these psychological neuroses and his kind of very simplistic, uh, narcissistic personality uh, led him to visit violence. And, you know, he didn't have he didn't offer any examples with that. But we can think of people like the Unabomber or um, uh, Timothy McVeigh. No, these are these are well-known lone wolves uh, who have performed domestic terrorism uh, in the in the subsequent uh, decades who are not substantially different from Lee Oswald. Uh, people who are not crazy, but emotionally rot and who have an axe to grind, and then they decide to lash out against some part of the system that they believe is to blame for injustice. I don't know that Oswald would have shot a president had he not learned that week that the president was going to be driving past his, pl- work, um, his place of work, but he did try to shoot uh, what he thought, whom he thought was the next Hitler, and that was General Edwin Walker, a Dallas-based uh, army general who had been fired by Kennedy's administration for having incited his troops uh, to uh, to adopt uh, extreme right-wing views. Um, so he did try to shoot at Walker. Walker, uh, you know, was was uh, by luck or grace managed to survive a very narrow, uh, you know, a very narrow miss. Uh, perhaps a fluky miss, and that meant that Oswald was even more frustrated uh, because the the great uh, the, the great capitalist system that he was trying to help overturn uh, he had just barely failed uh, to to make a, an impression earlier six months earlier before the Kennedy assassination. I have a question that picks up on uh, an event that occurred in 2016 during the presidential campaign, when by then a candidate uh, Donald Trump accused. Uh, um, Cruz, Ted Cruz father essentially making a statement that uh, Ted Cruz father might have been uh, involved somehow in the killing of JFK. And uh, that made me think about the question of uh, why people still believe in conspiracy theories related to the JFK assassination. In other words, why do people still do not accept the plausible idea that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald did it for his own motives, but there must have been something else and a student of mine uh, talking about this particular case, uh, uh, she used uh, in the past the word, there's something fishy about it. Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I, I read a lot of the different um, 
explanations by experts. I mentioned Barkun, Yuzinski, and, and, and some others. And I think there was always something missing in the equation for me, and that is that too often we ascribe conspiracy thinking to either to ment- mental illness or maybe just uh, political imbalances. But, you know, Donald Trump was in power, and it didn't prevent him from uh, you know, acting and talking paranoid. So it's not necessarily being powerless, and it's not necessarily being mentally unstable, though I'm sure these things contribute. Uh, this is what I liked about reading René Girard, and it, it's, the, it's, it's that human beings are, are, are not that different one from another. We are purpose-seeking organisms, right? At the end of the day, we want our lives to make sense. We're not necessarily f- looking for truth. If something that we know to be true helps us feel better about who we are, or it helps us um, justify how we live our lives, then we accept that truth. But there are a lot of things that cause cognitive dissonance that we ignore, or we uh, we, we kind of uh, manipulate or change in our minds, uh, so that the story that we tell ourselves is one in which the evils of the world, you know, the causes of injustice, is clearly identified. And we are in the circle of the good. I don't know too many people who wake up in the morning and say, I am the cause for evil in the world. So I think we have to look at this almost theologically in the sense that uh, conspiracy theories are a form of theodicy. They're a form of an explanation for why there's evil in the world. Uh, As uh, Canadian journalist Jonathan Kay uh, once said, he came to speak to my students. He said, uh, you know, conspiracy theories answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And so I take a bit of an existentialist approach at the end, not in the Sartrean way, but more in the Kierkegaardian way, that humans construct a story that makes them justify who they are, who they want to be. It's easier than having to change your mind or change your views or uh, realize that you were wrong. Um, So to, to listen to a conspiracy theory that flatters our ego, It might scare us. It might tell us we are being targeted, that we are a victim. But at the end, it tells us that we're important. Uh, Back when I considered, well, I consider that, I consider myself now a recovering conspiracist. But back in the days when I was, um, you know, consuming conspiracy theories a great deal, they flattered my belief that, first of all, I wasn't alone, that my fears were justified, that there was a community of people like me out there, and that we're speaking truth to power. And that can be very empowering, but at the same time, it's a little bit of a delusion. It's somehow uh, avoiding our own responsibility for many of the world's problems. It does come out of a certain narcissism, but not necessarily one that is pathological. I think one that all human beings eventually have. So uh, conspiracy theories tell us the story that we want to hear. So to come back to, you know, uh, uh, President Trump and 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 uh, Ted Cruz's father. I think that was just a practical story that Trump used in order to gain some points. But then Donald Trump is a strange fish, right? He doesn't necessarily believe his own stories, but he does use them to promote himself. And I would call that a, a conspiracy charlatan, uh, someone who writes books about conspiracies just to make money out of them. But that's not who most conspiracy believers are. I think most of them are people who are hurting. They're frustrated about some issue. Uh, back in the 60s, it may have been the Vietnam War. Later on, it was something else. It may have been, you know, uh, the cost of living. Uh, for me, I think as, as a young man in university, it was not understanding why once the Cold War had ended, that suddenly uh, there was still war again. That I had some friends who had to go uh, out to Operation Desert Storm. Uh, fortunately, didn't 
didn't die. They didn't see action. But no, there's this fear that I thought we finished the Cold War. Why are we fighting again? It must be that the United States is a force for evil, right? It's an easy conclusion to reach. And it's true that there's corruption. It's true that there's incompetence. In fact, I would say that bureaucracies are more often incompetent than corrupt. But you do have both. And there are conspiracies. Uh, the Watergate affair you know, was, was definitely a clear example of a conspiracy at the highest levels. But most conspiracies are not like the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories or, or others like them, the 9-11 conspiracy theories. Um, they're too complex. They're simplistic. And they start looking a lot like a Hollywood movie script. Let me move to uh, part three of the book. Now, part three should make a great CSI series, honestly. Can you take us through the reality and conspiracies of the forensic analysis of the murder? And I was thinking that between Daily Plaza, the bullets, the carabine, the video, there's probably enough material to conspire for a century. Yeah, when a person gets shot in broad daylight with a crowd of hundreds, um, well, it, first of all, it's a tragic event. Uh, but as far as the police is concerned, uh, you know, there's a big problem there of contamination. And so the problem with trying to figure out what happened that day is uh, the, 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 the scene of the crime. Now, the, the Texas School Book Depository was sealed very early on, but you couldn't do that to Dealey Plaza. There are people running around everywhere, and so finding bullet fragments, things like that, are very hard to do. The limousine was not, in, uh, was not uh, uh, looked at in depth until they got to Washington that evening. It was flown in. Uh, the Manneker Carcano rifle was first examined by the Dallas police, then flown to the FBI in Washington. So what happens is over a period of a day or two, uh, you have a number of different um, uh, organizations, the, the police and, 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 uh, and other types of agencies that are uh, doing their work separately. Uh, it's very hard to coordinate and it's a very complex scene. And also you have a number of witnesses, but witnesses who were panicked who were unsure what's going on. Some people thought they heard firecrackers at first. Some people thought they saw smoke from the grassy knoll area. Now, there's a number of different ways that smoke can be produced. Uh, cigarettes and mufflers, you know, for example. So we can't rule those out. Maybe they did see smoke, but did it have anything to do with a rifle? You know, most rifles don't emit smoke. Uh, Oliver Stone, in fact, had to use a smoke machine to replicate this famous uh, uh, puff of smoke at the grassy knoll. So it, it shows that a... a it, it would have been maybe an ancient musket, I guess, but uh, not not a uh, not a, a modern rifle that was used at that point. So it was a complex scene uh, to reconstruct, and that is why I think it created a great deal of um, of confusion. Uh, so Dealey Plaza had a number of things that happened that sometimes are interpreted as being suspicious. Uh, for example. Uh, a man who was an epileptic had a seizure just before Kennedy's motorcade came through and was taken to the hospital with an ambulance. Allegedly, they say, uh, to get ambulances away from Dealey Plaza. I don't know what would be the point because the limousine wasn't going to stop there. Um, but then that man, it turns out, uh, he didn't get treated at the hospital, but he didn't disappear either. He just went home. He had epilepsy and he felt better. And when everyone came with, you know, the president's entourage, it was clear that he wasn't going to get any treatment for a while. He took an aspirin. He went home. He felt better. So there's nothing suspicious. It's just that in the whole brouhaha of the event, the, uh, the suspicious uh, epileptic just kind of disappeared in the cracks. 
Same thing with these famous um, hobos that were found in a train car not too far uh, away. They were photographed by the media being uh, walked towards the police station. They're not handcuffed, so they're not under arrest, but they were going to be questioned. They were questioned, but they were released quite quickly when it was found that the other policemen had found a suspect, Lee Harvey Oswald. It took 25 years, I think. Uh, was it 19? A little bit less than that. It was in 1991 or 92 that a conspiracy researcher called Mary LaFontaine actually found their booking slips at the Dallas archives that had been misplaced on the day of the assassination. So sometimes it's just that evidence has been misplaced, some things can't be found, and that creates the vacuum for people to um, imagine uh, or theorize uh, of what may have been there. But of course, to theorize, you have to start with a scenario. And if your scenario is that there were multiple shooters and that these people wanted Kennedy dead at all means using a triangulation of crossfire, that's what you're going to look for. And you're only going to look at the evidence that fits that theory. So that's one of the problems with uh, that, 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 that scene. But I would say that uh, the Dallas police did the best they could. Uh, the sheriff's office, the Secret Service, the FBI, uh, all in different ways, did as good as, as well as they could under the conditions. Perhaps there was some, uh, some mistakes made, uh, but I don't, I don't see any uh, massive cover-up or massive conspiracy there. Let me move to uh, part four. Part four of your book is about the so-called cover-up, either staged by the Secret Service or the doctors. Some claim that the Zapruder video, for instance, was a fake and part of a cover-up. So I was wondering, is a cover-up needed for a good conspiracy theory? And what's the role of cover-up in the JFK case? Is a cover-up needed for a good conspiracy? Well, if, if you want it to be a good conspiracy, like a Hollywood movie, I guess it helps. Uh, in real life, I think most conspiracies are people trying to cover up their own mistakes uh, or having a kind of a, a perverse sense of altruism thinking that the world would be better off if they do this one thing that's illegal because, say, Congress isn't working correctly or the police is full of corrupt people, so we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. So in my, in my 15 year or so um, observation of various conspiracy theories, and I have students writing about them also every term, uh, I don't really see many real conspiracies that turn out to be something much different than that. It is true that, say, um, some assassinations did happen. Uh, the Americans have killed individuals, and uh, you know the Russians have also. Um, so uh, conspiracies happen. They're generally uh, not as sexy as the conspiracy theories that we read in books or that we see um, in, in films. As far as the Kennedy assassination is concerned, um, a lot of the claims of cover-up can be fairly easily debunked, at least with enough research. A good example is this whole claim that the Zapruder film uh, somehow was, uh, was re-edited in secret by the CIA. And here, even some conspiracy believers like um, uh, Josiah Thompson, uh, who wrote this famous book in the 60s, uh, Six Seconds in Dallas. Thompson still believes that there were multiple shooters. However, as a private detective, he does admit that there's no way that the Zapruder film could have been faked. There was just no time to do that. Uh, the chain of custody is watertight. 
Mr. Zapruder was with his film until the very next day when it was purchased by Time Life and the original was taken uh, to Chicago. And by then, there were three other copies that were made for the Secret Service and FBI, both with Mr. Zapruder there. Um, and Mr. Zapruder, it turns out, though he didn't say anybody at that time, kept also another copy in his own vault. So the ability for the CIA or what have you to actually re-edit the Zapruder film and no one be able to find an alternative film is, is, is practically impossible. Uh, and, and that's not to say, and, and, and uh, Thompson points this out as well, uh, that's, you know, at that time, they didn't know how many films and pictures were not yet in the public domain or in the hands of the government or the media. There could have been dozens and dozens of other films or pictures taken that would show that the Zapruder film had been re-edited. But we haven't found any of that. Uh, some of these films would emerge several weeks later, well after the frames of the Zapruder film had been published in Life magazine. So there's a good example that if you spend enough time looking at uh, the context of the assassination, how this film was, was used, sold, manipulated, etc., there's just no place for a conspiracy uh, to include extra bits or to take bits out of, of the film. And actually, I really wanted to ask you something about the Zapruder video, which uh, essentially it's really one of the most violent video that was globally shared uh, around the world in that historical moment. And, and I was wondering about uh, the role of technology in the conspiracy theories, whether it's video or even the idea of manipulating material. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to see how to what lengths uh, many conspiracy-believing authors are going to go trying to create a very complex scenario to justify their belief that the Zapruder film was somehow uh, edited or, or as a hoax. Uh, there is one man called David Mantic, uh, a radiation oncologist who's, who's written quite a bit about this uh, and has also vilified me uh, online about, about my book because I, I do criticize his theories. Uh, I, I don't mean any insult to him, but uh, I don't feel that his writings were quite as nice towards me. But um, Mr. Mantic, or Dr. Mantic, I should say, uh, has claimed that because Hollywood Studios, particularly Walt Disney, was able to create something like um, uh, Mary Poppins, then the technology existed to fake the Zapruder film. Uh, a, <laughs> that even if the technology was there, we're really talking about two different things. There's no cartoons, you know, etched onto the Zapruder film. Um, and uh, Disney has hundreds of animators who probably took uh, one or two years to be able to produce that film. Uh, here we're talking about at most six to 12 hours that could have been used to create this alternative film. And at the same time, um, replace the other copies that were made for the Secret Service and FBI that were already in Washington uh, by that time. So the timeline just doesn't fit. Uh, it seems that uh, sometimes the, uh, the conspiracy theory has to become so complex and convoluted for it to fit the theory that it's simply, uh, using Occam's razor, uh, grossly improbable. Uh, you know, to, to say that there's still a, a room of, of possibility there, it, it's very, very small. Does that answer your question? In the conclusion, you talk about why conspiracies rewrite the past. And so I was wondering if you can talk about this and why JFK has become a sort of a Jesus-like figure. And I remember last year, you know, hundreds of people gathering in Dallas awaiting for ease and of others' return. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's interesting for two reasons. Well, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is that a lot of the people who were waiting for either John Kennedy or or John Kennedy Jr. in, in Dealey Plaza. Now, I, I've only heard this secondhand, so I don't know how serious or how big the group was. Uh, but it's interesting that a lot of these people were from the QAnon movement, which is a definitely a right of center movement. Uh, whereas generally JFK conspiracy theories are more likely to, to, to gain popularity in the left. People who consider themselves progressives or socialists or, 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 you know, uh, liberal, uh, they, they tend to believe that when Kennedy died, uh, the right wing of the country took over. Um, so it's interesting to see how over time, sometimes different political groups will cherry pick of the same evidence, but so they have the same kind of enemy in mind, the deep state or whatever that is. But at the end, it's motivated by very, very different reasons. Um, so conspiracy theories are fluid. They serve uh, particular agendas in the present. We read conspiracy theories about the past, just like we read myths. That's why I use the word myths and mythology, because the way we read myths says more about who we are than about what actually happened. You know, in the book, I use examples like the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible. Uh, could anybody prove, I mean, a lot of people don't believe in this, but even among Christians, Jews, and Muslims who, who believe in some kind of first couple, uh, there's not always the, con uh, the, the conviction that it had to happen that way. The story, however, says something about what humans are. There are people who often seek knowledge and, and moral high ground at the expense of their own good and disobeying, disobeying some of the, 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 we could say, the natural laws or, or the greater laws uh, that they receive through, through their religion. Um, so the story of Adam and Eve is a very powerful myth because it tells people about things like original sin. Or it tells them about, uh, the, I don't know, the purpose of sexuality, we could say. Um, uh, the whole place of humans in, in the moral uh, dimension, that somehow they should not be inventing their own uh, moral standards, but rather deferring to, uh, you know, higher truths. You know, even people like Plato, who was not a Christian or a Jew, had these kinds of beliefs. So myths tell us about, tell us about who we are. Uh, John F. Kennedy is one of these... Um, persons like Abraham Lincoln or Marilyn Monroe, who are iconic. They have a cult of personality. They are imbued with this kind of larger-than-life character, and they, they achieve things or could have achieved things historically that many people um, you know, um, admire or look, look up to. And that means when a person like John Kennedy is killed, particularly before he did much, Kennedy made a lot of speeches, and he... He had a promise of a, the new frontier, space exploration. This is true. But at the same time, he was quite a pragmatist. He was quite a cold warrior. Um, he was definitely dedicated to stopping the growth of communism uh, throughout the world. A lot of times these things are set aside for a different kind of a Kennedy, a Kennedy who was a peacemaker, a Kennedy who was going to change the world, who was going to, uh, you know, end racism and all these things. And that's not to say that Kennedy didn't want those things, but that doesn't mean he was going to accomplish them. Uh, sometimes I use the example of um, President Obama. President Obama came to power in 2008, promising free health care for everybody. But then the 2008 crisis happened, 
And then little by little, his whole plan for free, affordable health care was eaten up, right? A little bit like uh, the old man and the sea's fish. And so at the end of the day, Barack Obama delivered a less than uh, admirable for his supporters health care plan that was still too much for his opponents. He became, I would say, an admirable caretaker president, a person who did not change the world, who did not live up, however, to the expectations. You know, he received a Nobel Prize very early on, and many of his promises didn't pan out. Now, imagine had, God forbid, but imagine if Barack Obama had been assassinated in his second or third year in office. People would look back at this first black president as the man who was going to change America, who was going to end racism, free health care, peace in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's easier to look at a fallen uh, a fallen hero who has not yet accomplished what he set out to accomplish as someone who would have done that, right? It becomes a, an exercise in time travel or in alternative dimensions. And so the same thing happened with Kennedy, first Catholic president, a man who was born in the 20th century, who represented the baby boomer generation, uh, a man who uh, you know, had a great deal of charisma, a beautiful wife, little children in the White House. He represented something fresh and new. When he died, then a lot of people were confused. Why would a communist kill him? Uh, because I don't think they understood Kennedy's policies very well, nor the mindset of Lee Harvey Oswald, who saw Kennedy, uh, for good or, or not, you know, maybe not accurately, but who saw Kennedy as the spokesperson for the evil capitalistic system. Uh, and so what happens is Kennedy becomes beatified. He becomes a kind of a fallen God. Uh, unlike Jesus, he doesn't come back to life. So we're left on our own trying to create this new Jerusalem without the help of, you know, of the Messiah. And of course, every good Messiah story requires a Judas figure. And this is where people like Lyndon Johnson, um, you know, the war, I was at the, the military industrial complex, whatever that means, it's so vague, it could mean anything. Uh, this is where these things come in and fill the void. You know, once you have your hero, you need an evil. And this is where Girard's theory were very good. You know, when humans look for purpose, they're trying to find who the enemy is and they're trying to find who the friend is. And if they don't have them, they'll create them. They'll create a story that makes them look like either victims or prophets or heroes because that's the world that's meaningful to them. It becomes more like a Hollywood movie, uh, but unfortunately, that's not how history usually works. One last question. Yes. Is there anything that we didn't discuss in our conversation, but you would like to share with us? Uh, there's probably a lot. Uh, certainly, I want to thank uh, my wife and kids who, uh, for eight years or so, put up with me, you know, locking myself in my basement, working on this. Uh, in many ways, this was not just an academic pursuit for me. Uh, certainly, it came out of the courses that I teach and believing that kind of standing on the fringe between the world of historians and the world of philosophers, I had something original to contribute here. Um, uh, but at the same time, you know, it was kind of a purging of a personal uh, issue. And that is, I felt that I was taken in uh, by a group of people who may have been well-meaning, but who were, unfortunately, um, uh, I don't know, maybe like like the those prisoners in, in uh, the cave analogy by Plato, you know, they are, uh, they are slaves to a, a false history, to a false reality. And so my leaving this fold felt a little bit like leaving a, a religious cult. Um, there's a lot of differences between conspiracy thinking and, and cultish groups, but there's also a lot of similarities. 
And sometimes I think uh, they need to be addressed because people who believe in conspiracy theories, while they may be right, are often um, they're often um, uh, motivated by a feeling of uh, powerlessness, insecurity, and anger. And these things get directed at uh, some low-lying fruit. They create a scapegoat uh, in order to blame them. So I didn't do it because I have this admiration and love for the CIA. Uh, I did it because, as a historian, I care that we believe in accurate history, for good or for worse. Uh, and we shouldn't be distorting history just for our personal interests. It's also why, and I can maybe finish with this, I, I started uh, doing a podcast a couple of years ago. It's called Paranoid Planet. If you help me indulge in a, just a little bit of uh, self, uh, shameless self-promotion, uh, you can go to the website, uh, www.paranoidplanet.ca. And, uh, or, or you can just Apple, Apple podcast, Spotify, all these great, uh, all of these, um, uh, uh, platforms. And what we do is about monthly, we do uh, a variety show. It includes essays, discussions. I do interviews with mostly academics, but sometimes journalists and also conspiracy believers talk to people on the street. Uh, what I compare it to is like if Jimmy Kimmel, uh, had a baby with uh, Walter Cronkite or something like that, there would be a mixture of kind of serious and silly. And, and this is what I want to do. I want to make the discussion about conspiracies uh, fun, informative, and most importantly, that people will be encouraged to talk to each other without shouting at each other. We live in a very, uh, in a period of a lot of uh, toxic discourse. And so I didn't want to shy away from hard, um, from difficult topics but I want us to be able to, to face them, even critically, not necessarily agree, but at least do it with respect, honesty, and, and a little bit of fun. And I think that's what we've accomplished with Paranoid Planet. And I'm proud to say that uh, now we're, we're going to do a whole series on JFK starting this month. This was uh, Michel Jacques Gagné, author of Thinking Critically About the Kennedy Assassination, Debunking Myths and Conspiracy Theories, published by Routledge in 2022. And as already mentioned, Michelle is also the host of Paranoid Planet that you can find at paranoidplanet.ca, where you can also find a 20% discount on the book. Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. <laughs>